This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest is Mr. Jack Carlson, the founder of Rowing Blazers. Jack, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. So since we've spoken, you've launched multiple new watch collections. I think what's really important to say right now that's so different about what you've doing with Rowing Blazers is you've not only done some collaboration products, but within a very short amount of time, you've done collaboration products with three different companies, and some of those you've done multiple collaboration products. And I guess... Uh, you, you know, you know watches enough. You know that what you're doing is unique. Are you are you trying to do something different, or is it just working out that way that you're working with so many people in a short amount of time? I just love your thoughts on that. It's just kind of working out that way. I mean, these are all brands that I love very much and have been passionate about for a long time. Rowing Blazers as a brand, and really kind of as my design studio and creative outlet in general. We've always done a lot of collaborations. They've always been pretty diverse and pretty wide-ranging. That's been part of the idea from the beginning, really. Um, but what we have been doing in watches, I don't think I ever really imagined it or sort of planned for it. Um, I, I knew I wanted to do to do something in the world of watches. We had some conversations with Seiko pretty early on when the brand launched which I was very, very excited about. But I didn't really imagine that it would blossom and grow into, into what it is. Um, some brands do sneaker collaborations. We do watch collaborations. Again, not by really any kind of super strategic design. Um, that's kind of how it's panned out. But it's it's been very exciting. And I know the watch community is notoriously, uh, shall we say, stern in its judgments on um, any kind of collaboration or new collection, etc. And so it's also been very rewarding to see um, the generally positive reception that our various projects with Tudor, Seiko, and Zodiac have had. I want to I want to comment on some of the sort of subtext you mentioned there about the reception. Now, I think it's very interesting here because you're making a watch that is designed to be to we'll call it enthusiast standards of quality, brand, design. You you yourself are a, someone who appreciates timepieces, and no doubt you want to make sure that the resulting watches that you make that have your brand name on it are good watches. With that said, Rowing Blazers is clearly not necessarily selling to your traditional watch enthusiast or collector. You are selling to the Rowing Blazers customer, which is um, sometimes there's overlap, but is really more about fashion and lifestyle and getting something cool. And so it's it's actually unfair, in my opinion, to sort of judge the actual performance or reception of your watches just based on sort of what the watch enthusiasts say. I think the, the, the most flattering thing is that the watch enthusiasts are, are speaking about it heavily and that you're on their mind. And for me, that is actually the most positive thing that has been a result of this. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm not doing any I'm not doing anything really 
for the sake of having, you know, the approval of, of anyone else, really. I mean, I'm trying to just do things that are cool and that I like. Of course, I always want to do them in a way that is respectful to the larger community and most of all to the brands that we're working with. I mean, Rowing Blazers as a brand in itself is pretty unusual. It's a reflection, I think, of my somewhat eclectic, weird tastes and interests and passions. You know, when I started it, I didn't really know exactly what it was going to morph into. Rowing Blazers started as a book that I wrote when I was in graduate school and when I was a coxswain on the U.S. national rowing team. And my side project was doing this book. It was a coffee table book. And it's about the tradition of the blazer in the sport of rowing. And it kind of turned into this sort of anthropological look at this sartorial tradition within a sport that I was a part of for a long, long time. Um, I thought that was going to be a very niche book. I thought it was going to be really just for the rowing community. It turned into something much bigger. Ralph Lauren got behind the book in a big way. And the book really kind of took off in the menswear and fashion worlds, which were completely foreign to me at that time. I was a grad student doing a PhD in archaeology, and I spent really most of my time either sitting in a library or much more of it sitting in boats and, and training and competing. I had an interest in watches from pretty early on. And I had some friends who were very deeply involved in the world of watches, Eric Wind being one of them who was a classmate of mine at Georgetown. Uh, and then later a classmate of mine at Oxford, actually. He's following me around like a bad penny. But some of the crews that I competed with at Henley and at the head of the Charles and some of these big races, we were actually sponsored by Hodinkee in those very early days. That, this was a completely different era of Odinky and of fashion and of watches, but that was sort of sowing the seeds for what came later. When I decided to sort of turn Rowing Blazers into not just a book, but into a brand and into kind of my creative design studio, a vehicle really to do whatever kind of crazy projects and, and so on, I imagine, collaborations were very front and center in my mind. I've always had pretty eclectic tastes. And even though Rowing Blazers, it is kind of a preppy brand. And that world is very much the inspiration for a lot of what we do. I also wanted to adapt some of the ideas that you more commonly associate with streetwear, because I was always also very interested in streetwear growing up. Um, and one of those aspects is doing a lot of collaborations. Like you don't really see Ralph Lauren doing a lot of collaborations. You do, of course, see the big streetwear brands like Supreme, Palace, etc. doing a lot of collaborations. I knew that for Rowing Blazers, like I didn't want to just make another Ralph Lauren. I wanted to bring in some of those ideas that I saw the Supremes of the world doing. And like one of those is very frequent and rapid and kind of wide ranging high, low, different types of product categories, different types of brands, collaborations. And so like that's been a very intentional part of Rowing Blazers from the beginning. And the the watch collaborations that we've done, I mean, they're they're part of that. They're not 
they're not the whole story, but you know, they're part of a story, but they have to be kind of understood in that context. I, I want to thank you for the explanation. I think it's so important to discuss the philosophy behind collaborating that you're espousing. It's it's really, I think, actually quite a beautiful concept if you really break it down. You are coming from an artistic, or we'll call it a creative direction standpoint. You have an idea for a finished good, and you go to someone who makes that good particularly well, and then you have them make a version of their good in your style, with your design, with your colors, whatever you want. And what you're able to do is you're able to say, I now have created a new item that's based on something good which already exists, but with an artistic vision. And as your brand and many other brands have proven, uh, Supreme is a good example, there's a huge market for that, and the community likes that very, very much. Would you, would you amend how I sort of explain the, the, the strategy of collaboration? No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think there's always something special when two very different brands come together. And usually the products that they create are by their nature limited in, in quantity or limited in time that they're available. And so that appeals to a very human sense of desire and collectability. And I think it makes the fruits of any collaboration, um, you know, in some ways more desirable. Now, I think there are a lot of collaborations that I see happening in the broader fashion industry. I can't speak as much to the world of watches, but certainly in fashion and streetwear, where you do sometimes see brands collaborating, where you're kind of wondering, like, how did that come about? Or what's really the story? I mean, with Rowing Blazers were fortunate to be. It's really up to sometimes, right? Sometimes you see the the collaboration. You're like, could you please explain why? I'm so confused right now. Sometimes you see, yeah, you see like <laughs> fast food restaurants collaborating with like fashion brands, or I don't know, like you know, sometimes uh, you'll see smaller brands doing collaborations where you know you you got to figure there was there was some kind of big check behind it because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, I think with Rowing Blazers, we've always fortunately been in a position to be able to kind of pick and choose um, who we want to work with. Uh, and I'm I'm not just saying for watches, but just kind of more generally and work with brands that make sense. I mean, most of the brands that we collaborate with are brands that have meant something to me personally for a very long time. And I'll say, by the way, too, like someone that doesn't know anything about Rowing Blazers as a brand or doesn't know our history or doesn't know anything about me, they may also be scratching their heads. Like they may be like, what's this tutor popping up on my Instagram that has this name Rowing Blazers written across the dial? Um, you know, and if you don't know what Rowing Blazers is or if you don't know any of the backstory, like that's that's perfectly legitimate, you know, and we are a small brand, like not everyone knows us. I think we almost kind of like seem bigger than, than we are sometimes. Uh, it, it is a little bit of kind of one of those things, if you know, you know, and it's like the Bader Meinhof effect, you start seeing rowing blazers everywhere. But if you don't know, you know, you may well be like, what the heck is this? But Everything we do, whether it's watches or whether it's barber jackets or hunter boots or Fila, uh, you know, Bjorn Bork style tennis gear, 
etc. I mean, it all comes from my, not just like my taste and my preferences, but a lot of it comes from like my life and the zeitgeist of my, you know, childhood and growing up. I grew up a little bit in Boston, a little bit in London, kind of like bouncing back and forth between the two. You know, I'm a, I'm a child of the late eighties, the nineties. And so all of these brands that I work with through rowing blazers are brands that really mean something to me. And in the world of watches, you know, the three brands that we've worked with are three brands that I've been passionate about for a long time. And so like, it's not just, it's not just random if that, if that kind of makes sense. No, absolutely. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the specific brands of the watches in a moment here. I want to talk about two more topics of interest to me uh, about, you know, just running a fashion brand these days. And one of them goes back to the discussion of collaborations. And it's sort of one of the business considerations. And we talked about this a little bit when we initially um, discussed Seiko, as well as, of course, the Rowing Blazers book, which I'm glad you brought that up again, because it's, it's, it's so important that people know why the brand is called Rowing Blazers and what your own personal history with Rowing Blazers are, the jacket you wear while rowing, um, is related to actually the, the, the ordering of these products. And I think it's very important to mention that with a lot of these brands and collaborations, and correct me if I'm wrong, you as the brand not only have to come to the design, but you, you, you order. So these are manufacturers, and you say, hey, I want you to make a certain number of units um, designed like this. And they're more comfortable doing that rather than an actual um, you know, shared investment, redesign it, and they build everything. And I think it's important to discuss a little bit the mechanics of of the fact that you as a company, Rowing Blazers, puts in an order with, I'm just looking on your website here, K-Swiss, for example, and says, hey, we want these items, and then you sell it, you know, designed by you, sold by you, uh, manufactured by K-Swiss. And, and that's really what it sort of needs to be. You, you order those units. Or is it different? Is it more of a shared cost model? Because I think that, um, you know, it's important for people to know that you need to not only design these, but have to have the confidence behind it to order th- those, you know, th- those uh, clothing, those watches or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, every collaboration we do is structured somewhat differently. But your point is exactly right. I mean, this uh, is not just an art project. Like, I can't just design something, you know, really cool for the sake of it. You know, and I mean, to me, I I love art. I consider myself to be a designer and to be a creative first and foremost. I actually hate all of the business side of things, but I do think it serves a role too because, um, yes, there is a whole other side of any collaboration or any capsule or any product or launch that we come out with that, you know, it needs to be commercial at the end of the day, you're going to be judged based on, of course, what people say about it and what uh, the the critics and the press and so on reaction to it is, but also based on, did anyone actually at the end of the day want it? Did anyone want to come up with $500 or $3,500 or whatever it might be to actually say, I want to own this and I want to wear it? Um, and there, there's value in that. I mean, beyond just like, you know, from a business perspective, but I think that is one of the 
how shall I put this? I mean, it's like one of the measures of success in a way. And it definitely adds a whole new layer of complexity to any project, any collaboration, anything that we do. I love the watch collaborations that we do. And there are a few other projects that fit into this category. Uh, But I love the watches because I don't have to worry about production. I mean, we're a very, very small team. In the very beginning, it was just myself and my business partner, David, who I've worked with since even before the brand launched. But we started working on this as a side project back in 2015 when I was still on the national team. And we would meet in like diners. We would meet in in an outburger. We'd, we'd meet like wherever we could in between like my practices and training sessions to just work on this brand together. But in the beginning, it was literally just two of us. I mean, it's not that much bigger even today. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of work even to just get like a rugby shirt to be the exact quality, all the details, the exact fit, etc. that that I want it to be. Um, that's a huge amount of work for just like a one product or one category. And I think we've done that pretty well with like the rugby shirt, the blazer, the polo, a few sweaters. But it's like, I would not want to re- try to reinvent the wheel and create something, uh, you know, of a commensurate quality in the world of watches, or even for that matter, with a rubber boot. Like I'd rather work with Hunter. They are the world's experts in making rubber Wellington boots. You know, they make the Wellington boots for the queen uh, or now the king, I guess. Um, I love those opportunities to work with brands that are A++ at what they do. With rowing blazers, you know, I strive for us to be A++++ in making blazers, in making blazers for rowing clubs, which is how we began. And that's still a big part, an important part of what we do. It's not something that we are talking about a lot on our website or on our social media, because that's not, you know, that's not part of the ready to wear collection that's available to the general public, but it's still a really important part of what we do. And I think our quality and the standards we set to our for ourselves there is higher than anybody else. And the same can be said of the rugby and so on. And so it is really such a pleasure to work with these incredible watch brands. Um, And it's also peace of mind that I'm not going to have to be (laughs) breathing down the factory's neck or like every time in our main line in clothing, we want to make a new product or design a new product or a new category. It's so much work. It's unbelievable. There would be shortcuts for sure to just be like, oh, you guys make rugby shirts all the time. Yeah, just um, just use your standard fit. Just use your standard collar. Just use your standard fabric. But that's that's not how we go about things. And it's it's all in the name of trying to make it the best quality, the best product it can be. With watches, with the brands that we're working with, we already know that they're at the best. It's not like just going to a factory in China that's making watches. It's working with these storied brands. I mean, that's very important. A question for you. On your website, obviously it's your opportunity to explain the story of the products. 
and things like that. Do you feel that these stories about you choosing the best suppliers out there should be told more? Or do you think that sales and performance is totally okay? If people want to look deeper, they'll recognize how how good of a thing you've done in terms of choosing the supplier. Um, or, you know, should that be a little bit more part of the storytelling? Because it just dawns upon me that you're you're absolutely right. You spend so much time and effort on each and every product. Is that is that being told enough? You know, there's so many products going out and marketing, it's it's hard to keep up. You know, is is there, I guess, a future need to do even more of that storytelling? You know, I like to let the product speak for itself. I'm just vaguely remembering a, a story I once heard. I can't remember where it's from or what the context. So I'm sure I'm going to botch it. But, you know, it's something along the lines that you never see Japanese products being marketed saying, we're the best, or this is the best quality, or any of that kind of language. The product speaks for itself. I mean, there's something, I think, really to be to be said for that. You know, I again, this being a small brand, I'm very hands-on in writing a lot of our copy um, that goes into the website or onto the press release or onto a blog post, whatever. And I always try to tell, like in a collaboration especially, the story and the kind of raison d'etre for why we're doing something. Um, But you're right. I mean, it's not like that copy is putting rah, rah, we're the best quality front and center generally. I mean, we might say something like, you know, along those lines in a sort of humorous way, although, you know, quality is something that we take very seriously. But I think if that became the focus of like all of our copy, um, it might not ring as true as just being able to experience the product for yourself. That makes sense. I mean, it just there's always a future opportunity to go deeper into that. I just think it's important that there's a very big distinction between a product which is just designed to look cool and emulate something else of a high quality or that is itself uh, maybe industry leading or of a very high standard and then given an artistic element to it. Because I think that there's a perception amongst a lot of consumers that if an article of clothing looks too fun – it's not serious and therefore isn't made well. And only over the last 20 or 30 years, I'd say with sort of in Japan with Bape and stuff like that, Nigo, do you have this merger of fun and crazy designs with top quality? And I still think your average consumer doesn't know that those types of things exist. I could be wrong, but do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think we are one of the leaders in breaking that uh, kind of assumption. I think that's in a way almost is the niche that we've been able to carve out for ourselves. I mean, one of the big philosophies behind rowing blazers is clothing should be fun and it shouldn't just be fun. It should also be well-made. It should last a very long time, et cetera. But there are not many brands that bring together uh, these different ideas color is a very important part of the rowing blazers brand as well. I mean, that's easy to just say, like there are probably a lot of brands that say, Oh yeah, color is so important. But I mean, all you need to do is just click around the rowing blazers site, or just look at some of our campaigns or some of our previous collections 
or even just our watch collaborations for that matter, to know that, okay, it really means something when I say color is an important part of the brand. And that actually ties back to the origin story of this brand. It comes out of the world of rowing blazers. I mean, that's the name of the brand. That's how the brand started making blazers for all these rowing clubs. Before that, there was the book that I wrote called Rowing Blazers. All of those blazers made for all of these rowing clubs, they're very brightly colored, or they have contrast color trim, or they have some kind of emblem or badge on the pocket that means something. And there's a reason why the color of the jacket is what it is. There's something in the history, or there's something you have to do to earn a blazer of a certain color, etc. And so that's very much part of the brand, this idea of color. Also, this idea of being a little bit rebellious. Like the history of the blazer, nowadays everyone has a blazer, usually a navy blazer, but the history of the blazer, it goes back to rowing clubs at Cambridge and Oxford in the 1800s. And the original blazer was a warm-up jacket that rowers would wear, they'd throw on to warm up, to jog down to practice. If it was a chilly day, they'd even wear it in the boat. It was getting splashed with river water. It was like a almost piece of technical apparel, but it was brightly colored so that spectators on the bank could tell which crew was which. And in that way, it was actually one of the world's first sporting uniforms. You know, one of the few earlier team sports that predates rowing in the Western world is cricket, but cricket Everyone just wears white the whole time. There's not really a need for uniforms. So there's all of this kind of interesting history with the rowing blazer itself. Guys started to wear their blazers to lunch, to parties, to class, in the common room, etc., much to the consternation of older generations. I mean, this is a time when people were wearing white tie and tails to go to dinner. And so someone's turning up in a red and black stripy blazer or a purple blazer with yellow trim, it's very loud. It's very much like the equivalent of, you know, what streetwear was doing a few decades ago. Um, And so that sense of color, that sense of rebelliousness, the eye for these emblems or badges that might go on the pocket, et cetera, that is really the genesis of the rowing blazers brand aesthetic. And I think you see it in a lot of what we do, even in the world of watches, like all of the Seikos we've done, they're brightly colored or they have some kind of fancy or patterned bezel. You see with the Tudor and the Zodiac that we've done where there's some kind of graphic or emblem on the dial. It's almost echoing those badges that would be on the pocket of the blazer or the bright colors uh, or patterns or stripes of a blazer. So I kind of just want to say that to give some context. This is not stuff that I put in all the just normal general marketing copy, but just to give you and your listeners like a little bit of a deeper, I don't know, look into how my brain works and how I approach these things. They appreciate that. That's, That's why they listen to Superlative. I'm really glad that you talked about <clears throat> color because it's it's really a topic I want to spend a little bit more time talking about, especially in regard to the success that colorful things have <clears throat> in the marketplace today. And I think you'll agree that compared to um, a decade ago, uh, 
colorful objects for a mainstream are uh, much more uh, sellable, if you will. And I have some theories behind that. And, I, and it really goes down to the idea that in the internet, it's a lot like the jungle. And if you look at the jungle today, how are animals and plants designed? Bright, flashy, that's how you get attention. There's so much going on in the jungle. In order to get any attention, you need to be that much brighter, that much more interesting, that much more eye-catching than the thing next to you. And that's because of the internet, because the internet is essentially a jungle of information. And when you're surfing through that, you only pay attention to things that, that pop out to you. So forget how it, how it is about wearing the clothing on the streets and the attention you get. In order to create the demand and the desire for these products and knowing that people are on the internet and that's where they learn about brands and, and new products, you have to necessarily stand out by definition. And therefore, uh, that's, that's not, not the only reason, but one reason why I think colorful goods are so important in today's marketplace. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, especially because historically, these same companies that you're working with would never make things as colorful or very rarely outside of these competition contexts. So I think it's important to talk about why color today is doing so well and, and maybe why historically uh, people shied away from color so much. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. You know, what I would add, though, is it's one thing to see something that's colorful and shiny and attracts your attention on the internet. But if you then order it and it's not up to snuff or the, the quality isn't there, um, you're not going to reorder it. So, or you're not going to be a return customer to that brand. So that's really kind of where my philosophy, my approach comes in. And I think, I think what you mentioned earlier is very accurate. People might not necessarily assume that something that's so colorful and so fun is also very well made or very high quality. I think now people know people who know the Rowing Blazers brand know us well enough to know our standards and and so on, but we are I think kind of pardon the pun like blazing a new trail uh, on that on that front. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Now, that's a really good, important element uh, to mention because I think that when it comes to color, it's rewarding, right? Like, let's take your average male consumer. Uh, 15 years ago, the idea of wearing a light blue shirt uh, or just something that would have been considered more feminine, for example, would have just been written off immediately. Like, unless it was a manly color, you're like, oh, I don't want to wear it, oh, I don't want to buy it, and marketers tended to know that. Then all of a sudden, I think more people started wearing or seeing other people wear these brighter colors. 
and recognizing, wait a minute, that actually looks pretty good. I mean, there's a limit, right? Like, I don't think most men want to wear hot pink, but the the available palette of colors your average man uh, can get away with wearing and look good is much broader than I think is the traditional, you know, do you want brown shoes or do you want black shoes? So we've 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 added this wonderful palette of colors. And again, there's a limit. I, I think that now that people are seeing it, they're recognizing it's okay. So it took these fashion forward companies like yours and sort of the early adopters. But now the mainstream is basically recognizing like, you know what, colors aren't so weird, right? I think that's exactly right. I mean, it is, uh, it is tough to, I mean, to go back to your point about the internet, I think it is tough to distinguish yourself on the internet, if especially if you're a young brand that people don't know and say, hey, buy this black sweater. Okay, well, what's so great about it? You know, I think one thing that I'd like to see with Rowing Blazers is I'd actually like to do more, more basics, more products that are a little bit more conservative or a little bit more staid in their in their colors and so on. And I think we're starting to do more and more of that. And I think we're kind of able to do more and more of that because people already know us. People have already uh, experienced our quality and they they kind of know what they're getting. So it, it is kind of funny. It's like, I think you have traditional brands that um, have maybe have been around for a long, long time and they've always made relatively safe, relatively conservative designs or stayed pretty conservative in their color palette and they're starting to branch out. We're almost... I don't want to say going the other direction or doing the opposite. We're always going to be making colorful products and doing colorful collaborations. That's what we're known for. But we're now starting to be able to do to do more. That's just, hey, this is a really beautifully made black sweater uh, or things along those lines. And, if, and of course, as a brand, it would make sense that you'd want to have those because those are good pieces of clothing to have. Um, I know that traditionally manufacturers have been responsible to what retailers want, right? The brick and mortar retailers would make orders and they'd be like, well, the, the retailers mostly want black, for example. So that's mostly what I'll make. And now you have a, a physical store, which is cool. And I'd love to visit myself. Um, but is, is having a physical space showing you that maybe people's tastes in that environment tends to lean more conservative, whereas they buy online it's a little bit more colorful. I, I really don't know, but I do know that historically, the the retailers that would order the goods from the manufacturers would tell them what colors they want, and they tended to skew quite traditional. Yeah, I think the internet and not having to rely on these big traditional retailers, these big traditional wholesale accounts, has really, really changed the game. I don't know of, and I don't really see or or imagine that what people are shopping in the store is is terribly different from what they're shopping online for our products. But uh, I do think that by not being bound to or or so reliant on, yeah, kind of the whims of of a buyer in a big traditional department store or or what have you, frees us to do things a bit differently and to take more chances, to be a bit more creative. And yeah, I think that's that's an important part of the Rowing Blazers story. So let's now transition to watches. And you've, 
again, over a relatively short amount of time, done a lot of timepieces. I want to ask one sort of basic question, maybe stupid one, but is this because they're selling so well? I mean, I know you like watches and you have fun with it, but, you know, most of the time companies that do these collaborations stretch it out a little bit. Uh, It's slightly different, but I think think of um, Todd Snyder, for example, with Timex, who has a great relationship with Timex. Um, and for many years has done things, but but he and them have sort of spaced them out to sort of once in a while. You've just sort of been like, let's go for it, different price points even. And um, again, I know you're having fun with it. I'm just wondering if there's anything related to, to sales performance, which is incentivizing you or motivating you to do so many so quickly. You know, I think it speaks to Rowing Blazers just being like a little bit more rock and roll, for lack of a better way of putting it. Okay. I think... Yeah, there's not really, (laughs) to be totally honest, like from a business sense, a huge amount of rhyme or reason or strategy when we have the opportunity to do something cool and, you know, I have the bandwidth to, to work on it or to design something. Like I generally, if it's something I like, I like to do it. I say no to a lot of things. They're generally the things that I don't like or are not as interesting to me. And I think that's actually part of how Rowing Blazers as a brand has, I don't know, I think that's part of the magic of of Rowing Blazers as a brand. I think that's part of what people respond to and like. Like, we don't do things on a traditional fashion calendar. It's not so neat and tidy and organized as like Todd Snyder's release calendar or or what have you. We don't have, it's not like J. Crew where it's like, here's the April collection and here's the May collection and here's the June collection. I'm talking about not just our watch collaborations, but just everything we do. It is a little bit more rock and roll. Um, We may go a couple of months and not really come out with anything new. And then we might hit you with boom, 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 a a series of pretty high profile collaborations in, in rapid succession. It is a little bit more akin to like a streetwear brand. I'm 35, but it is a little bit like a streetwear brand that's run by a bunch of kids uh, as much as anything else. And I think it's really passion that's driving, you know, everything that we do and that's driving these releases. And <laughs> like they use rock, rock and roll as the adjective. I think on the West Coast, we say it's very startup-y. Right, which means you want to try stuff, and you're not really sure uh, about what a good plan would look like yet. Rock and roll just means you know you 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 have a feeling, you want to do something, and you're up all night recording. Yeah, I mean, I think that's <laughs> we're not. You know, today is actually the sixth birthday of Rowing Blazers. Oh, congrats! So we're not like totally in startup world exactly, and the business is startup e. You know, like like the adjective, but we're still operated like that. Like we still make startup style decisions. I mean, that's that's definitely true. Uh, Again, a West Coasty thing, right? I I, I start. I, I lived in San Francisco for a long time, so I guess they say things like that out there. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I get it. I think that's a fair that's a fair as- assessment. You know, that's a fair uh, adjective to use in this case. But it is, you're right. I mean, we do a lot of different things in fairly rapid succession. It's very unusual to be working with, like Todd Snyder is working only with Timex. Like we obviously will come out with a collaboration with Seiko. Then we'll come out with a collaborator, you know, then we'll come out with a 
Zodiac. Then we'll come out with a Tudor. Then we'll come out with another Seiko just to keep everybody guessing like that. That's part of the fun. There's no, it's not like it's me in this big boardroom sitting around being like, Hmm, what's the best way to like make the most money or something like it's probably the worst way in some ways. Um, well, you're doing you're doing it for the fun and for the product, which I think is important. But then again, as brands grow, eventually you'll get tired of making these decisions and you'll hire some head of marketing, if you will, or launches, and maybe they'll have a more systematized approach. And then we'll be like, oh, Jack, we missed the days when you were doing it all ad hoc and having fun. And you know, you'll be like, oh my God, I can't win. Nothing, nothing, nothing seems to work. And then, uh, th- th- but that's how it goes, right? Well, it's it's working pretty well now, Good. so I don't want to change it too much, but. You do see brands, uh, you know, I've seen it with a number of brands that I've loved. Like you see them kind of grow up and then boom, suddenly they're they're not really that cool anymore. You know, I hope that never happens to Rolling Blazers. I think... Well, uh, l- let's talk about what happens. It, it happens because the founder gets exhausted because when the founder has his or her personality in all elements of the business, from communication to design to the way it's run. It is an extension of their personality, and if they're a good founder, it's a cool brand. But they get exhausted, and they have to delegate at some point. And having their personality continue on in the new members of the team is very challenging to do because naturally you say, well, you come from a good background. You have your own ideas. You're going to know finance better than me. Don't do it Jack style. Do it whatever your style is. And then the personality of the brand can become eroded. So it's it's actually a lot more like a rock band that you mentioned where there's like a, a personality, not just to what the brand looks like on the outside, but how the brand is run from the inside. And that needs to be maintained if it's going to stay the same brand. Yep, that's that's a hundred percent true. I I couldn't agree with that more. Okay, purple. So the latest collection uh, of Seiko watches, um, four colors, and I'll just for people that don't know, there's um, uh, a yellow, which is sort of a banana yellow, um, a pink, which is a bit of a powder pink, a white with uh, colored hour markers, and uh, a purple, a sort of an indigo purple. And the purple one is my favorite. It's the one that I chose. And it's funny because I was writing an article uh, that published a couple of months ago about colors, and I said purple is the next frontier uh, for, for men in terms of a color. Yes, there's a lot of great shades of purple for women, and women can wear it, but this prince kind of purple um, is one of a few shades. Maybe some people will call it eggplant. I don't know. Uh, depends on your, your association. But do you, do you agree that purple is sort of this this more or less unexplored territory for men's watch colors? You know, I can't opine as much in the world of watches, but certainly in the broader world of menswear, I do think it is largely sort of uncharted territory. But it's it's one of my favorite colors. I mean, especially for an accessory. I don't know that I'd go the full, you know, the full suit every day. Although we make a beautiful purple corduroy suit that I think is great for a party or for certain occasions. But I think purple is very, very wearable um, in accessories. And so, yeah, to have a, a purple watch or a watch with a purple dial is was very natural to me. I mean, it's something I've I've sort of wanted. A lot of what we do is things that I just want to exist in the universe and in the world, but that don't. And I feel very strongly about about purple and purple accessories. I think um I think I spent the better part of about five years wearing 
Oakley razor blade sunglasses with a purple lens. You know, cool. this is like the single, the mono lens. Yeah. A true early 90s classic, you know, wearing those almost every day. Like the whole time I was on the national team, I was wearing those sunglasses almost every day. Purple has been part of my my wardrobe for a long time. And so, yeah, I felt very strongly about wanting to include purple. Let's talk about getting the shade just right. Um, I've done enough of my own sort of watch design with companies to know how important it is for shades to be correct. And it's it's two elements. It's one, convincing the company you're working with to just you know, keep at it and keep trying with the color, but also personally making the decision exactly which shade do I want? Because it's actually very easy to say, I want a purple, yellow, pink, and white dial. There's actually a bunch of different colors that represent purple or yellow or pink or white for that matter. So talk a little bit about your own process and not only deciding what color you want, but how do you get the companies you work with to abide by the process to make sure that it's it's just right? Because again, consumers will will not buy something if it's just one shade off. Yeah, I mean, not just with watches, but with anything we make, it's a yeah. more complicated process than anybody can imagine. You have Pantone colors, of course, which gives a standardized sort of color chart that I can use someone sitting in Japan or in Switzerland can use, and we're going to know we're talking about the same thing. But of course, when it's rendered in a different material or a different finish, it might not look like that Pantone color card that you have sitting on your desk or in a Pantone book. So there's often, almost always, some back and forth and, hey, let's see a new sample this needs to be brightened up. This needs to be a little bit more red or this needs to be a little warmer or a little cooler or whatever. Um, that is standard part of the process, whether it's for watches or for a pair of shorts. You know, there are even other aspects to it when you get into soft goods like the wash on a fabric that, you know, don't come into the into the picture as much with watches. But Color, it's so important to the brand, so it's really key to get it exactly right in everything we do. And one of the things that I've learned is that even big, established fashion companies um, are very rarely able to do the same color twice. Like, they can get a color right in a particular production run where they set up a process. This has to do with fabric dyeing and things like that. But to get it right time after time... Um, is is a huge challenge. And you'll notice like, you know, Navy blazers from the same company and you compare a bunch of them, it's the rare company where that Navy looks consistent over the years. It often changes a little bit, not because anyone's trying to, but because getting colors consistent in a manufacturing run has traditionally been very difficult. Today with modern technology, there's a lot more controls and there's a lot more things you can do. But I'm so I, I like talking about this because consumers take this for granted. Yet, from a brand's perspective, it's really hard to manage colors properly. And and when when it comes out right, no one really pats you on the back saying you got it. They just if you get it wrong, it doesn't sell. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean about different dye lots. Um, as a small brand, we are sometimes the victim of of that as well. I mean. Most of what we're talking about, at least in my experience, is slight enough that it's difficult to notice, although I can notice sometimes. And, uh, you know, you do the best you can. 
we don't own our own fabric mills, for example. You know, we work with some of the best fabric mills in the world, but even they will come out with different dye lots that are slightly different shades. That's, you know, a little bit just the nature of the of the apparel industry, which is uh, just such a crazy, crazy world. I mean, I I got into this coming out of basically academia and I would say like high performance amateur sport. You know, I, I got into this world uh, straight after doing a PhD in archaeology and being a coxswain, <laughs> uh, racing at the world championships and so on. And it's a completely different universe. I still continue every day to be amazed, surprised. Like it's, it's amazing, but I can still be surprised almost every day by the, I don't know, this, the idiosyncrasies of the fashion world, many of which are absolutely maddening, but that's part of the adventure. That's part of the challenge. That's part of the barriers to entry. Like, if it was easy, anyone would do it. It takes some real patience, some real staying power. It's it's not easy. I'll tell you that much. Uh, no doubt. And speaking of not easy, I'm going to change the topic again here back to watches. You have done collaborations so far with Seiko, Zodiac, and Tudor, um, an American company, a Japanese company, and a Swiss company. And you've done so in a way that they've seemingly all kind of gotten along is is it true that they're all sort of supportive of, of what you're doing or are you having to sort of uh, do some diplomacy and make one brand feel comfortable that you're working with another brand and make it clear that this is an okay thing? Because I can imagine, at least because my own experiences, these brands are quite territorial and some people will be like, well, we want, we want to be your only watch person or something like that. Talk a little bit about the background of the relationships with the watch brands now that you have relationships with multiple of them. No, I haven't experienced any of that in anything that we've worked on. I think all of our watch collaborations are the three brands that we've worked with. They're at different price points. They're in different parts of the market. And all of the projects that we've done have been quite different. So we haven't really experienced that at all. I mean, first and foremost, I'm a designer. I'm a creative I like to design things. I like to come up with things that I want to see exist in the world. It's not like back in the days when I was sort of an athlete and, you know, getting an endorsement and it's like, well, you know, you can't wear these other types of sunglasses or something like that. It's uh, in each case, it's a creative and passion driven partnership. And I haven't experienced any any of that, any kind of issues with being territorial or there there hasn't been any any issue basically so far. I'm sure Eric would have, you know, already mentioned to you it's a possibility. If you thought about what you would say in response to a company if they said, you know, we don't want you working with that company or or something like that? You know, I think I think we have a good enough relationship with all of these brands. We have a very good relationship. And I think we conduct ourselves in a way that is respectful and, and thoughtful enough that hopefully that doesn't come to pass. Okay. I, again, it's, this is all theoretical stuff because if you're a retailer 
and you sell multiple brands, you're not even doing what Jack is doing by making collaboration products. The brands get territorial. They don't want you to sell this one. They don't want to be seen next to this one. Um, uh, you know, through historically through uh, retail merchandising, what they call it, where it says how your watches are displayed in stores. To um, you know, just who who your partners do business with. Um, it's a very emotional thing for them. And it's it's only a matter of time before you run into it. And you're right, you need to sort of take a stand and say, well, we're doing what's right for our consumers or what you, Jack, want to do and that we're, we don't think it's a problem. So as long as we don't think it's a problem, you shouldn't think it's a problem. That's, you know, that's a very legitimate stance to take because it sounds like um, watches are, are, are going to be increasingly important or at least a continuing thing. How do the rowing blazers customers, how do they respond? The people who are buying your other goods, mainly clothing, outside of the watch world, how does your sort of core customer responding to your timepieces? Well, we have a pretty diverse, pretty eclectic customer base, but I think generally the reception has been very, very positive. I think for those customers of ours who are not so immersed in the world of watches, it's an opportunity to to get involved and to be part of something that is capturing the attention of the watch community and to yeah to kind of get involved in some of the the fun of that world i would say there are of course rowing blazers customers that are very passionate about watches and have been for a long time and since long before we started uh dipping our toes in we've had for a long time vintage watches for sale on the site that do quite well and and in our store as well. We have a, a an assortment of vintage watches. So it's not an entirely foreign concept I think to our customer. But I think, you know, and this speaks actually to your prior question as well as like, well, how do you manage to kind of work with all these different brands at once? I think a large part of our success has been the earnestness through which we do everything that we do. Like, I don't think we've ever done anything that is, I don't know, stepping so far outside of what the brand stands for or stepping outside of where my interests and my passions are. I've never removed myself, you know, far enough out of the weeds of what the brand is all about that the brand has veered in a way that our core customers would would have anything to kind of complain about or not understand. And that's exactly what we're talking about earlier as brands get much bigger or if the founder leaves or something, you know, I think that's something you, you sometimes see, but there is a real earnestness, a real genuineness to the way we operate that I think puts us, stands us in good stead, both with our, our community, our customers, our guests, as well as with the brands that we collaborate with. So what do you want to do next with the watches? Do you want to keep at these price points? Do you want to do you want to start the Rowing Blazers watch brand? Because again, that just seems to be something that goes on. Are you just very happy doing the collaborations? Maybe you just busy and it's sort of something that you're happy for other companies to, to more or less handle. I'm just wondering if right now, this is sort of our second major conversation about it. You've evolved your opinion a little bit because there is this tendency for 
companies like Rowing Blazers to just have watches that just say Rowing Blazers on it. Again, I'm not saying it's a good or bad idea, but it is a tendency. And I'm wondering where your mind is at in that process. As of right now, I have no interest at all in doing that. We are excited about continuing our ongoing partnership with Seiko and our ongoing partnership with Zodiac and also excited to be doing a new collaboration with a brand we haven't Uh, with whom we haven't worked before that's launching this fall. And we have some very exciting things in the works in the watch world. So I'm just, I'm just excited about those projects. Um, Of course, there are a lot of, I have more ideas than I know what to do with. And it's a big frustration uh, for me, but it is also part of the joy is when you have the opportunity to, to bring one of those ideas to life. Um, it's very, it's very, it's very rewarding. Like I'd love to do a Babar the elephant watch. You know, we have, I think it's pretty well known the, the rights to Babar the elephant as, cool. a, as a licensee to do apparel and so on that has proven to be very popular. I mean, I grew up, reading the books about Babar the Elephant. And I wasn't sure how widely it would resonate. It's not like Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny or Snoopy. It's pretty well known. I, I grew up with it too. I remember it. But people absolutely love everything that we do with Babar the Elephant. We have so far not created a Babar the Elephant watch. But starting to have some conversations, it's something that I would really like to do. Not as a Rowing Blazers mono brand watch, like I said at the beginning. I Ralph really, Lauren would do that. They do the teddy bear thing. It'd be pretty simple for them. That would probably be a tough conversation. And you don't really I guess see, they're considered a competitor, right? You don't well, you'd have to ask them what they consider, but they're they're a million times bigger than us. I I know that. You don't really see them doing collaborations very frequently, whether it's with Babar or with really anybody else. They did a Fortnite collaboration a few months ago, which really? if, you if you haven't seen, please Google because uh, it almost sounds and, and even Is it works. an outfit? They did an outfit for it? Just Google it. That's that's all I can say. I got to um, see this. <laughs> but it is real. Um, <laughs> wow. But, you know, I think there are a lot of brands that would like to do a Babar watch with us. It's just, you know, it's just a matter of the stars aligning and and actually making it happen in and amongst everything else that uh, that we've got going on. But I just bring that up as, of course, one example of the various projects I'd love to pursue given the <laughs> given the time and the bandwidth and, and everything else. But we do have some very cool things coming up um, later this year and, and into the beginning of next year. Excellent. I love the energy. Final question is sort of on the managerial side. How are you doing just that, managing your bandwidth, juggling, because I think that, you know, your role or the success of, of, of a job like yours really in a lot of ways depends on how effectively you juggle time and priorities and, and stuff like that. Um, how are you doing that? Are you, are you, you know, are you, are you getting mentorship? Are you just able to naturally handle it? Because I think you'll agree that there's just not enough time in the day for everything, but you can't let certain things um, be abandoned while you focus on, on, on things that you, you like to do. <laughs> how am I doing it? Uh, barely. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, we have a good team. We have a small team. I have my business partner, David. We are, you know, just doing the best we can to just to keep all the balls in the air that we're juggling and uh, keep making cool stuff and, and keep coming out with fun projects and capsules and collections that, that I like, and that I'm passionate about, you know, we're about to come out in, in a few days here with our first collaboration with the Grateful Dead. This is not watches. This is, you know, apparel accessories and so on. That's going to be super. Oh, I saw what they did with shot jackets. That was great. They, I mean, there are a million Grateful Dead apparel collaborations. So standing out and doing something that, you know, makes sense for our brand. That's, that's important. Cool. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's just, that's like what's coming out in a few days. It's hard to even honestly keep track. When I first started rowing blazers or when it was just an idea and David and I were meeting in, in and out burger next to the Olympic training center in San Diego, like I had no idea what this would turn out to be. Like, I remember writing on a napkin ideas. I have the napkin somewhere for different brands I wanted to collaborate with. I mean, we were nobody, nobody knew who Rowing Blazers was. It was a book. I mean, that was it. There was no design house or brand or following or there wasn't even an Instagram account. But I wrote down like one of those first brands I wrote down was Seiko. I was like, I want to do collaboration with Seiko. I want to do boots with Hunter. I want to do a jacket with Barber. And in a way, like, I don't know how much, you know, you believe in any of this stuff. I'm not sure how much I do either, but it's like, we have almost kind of manifested it because like, we didn't reach out to Seiko. We didn't reach out to Barber. We didn't reach out to many of the brands that we end up collaborating with. Like what we're putting out there in the universe and the, the images, the copy, the products, the whole thing, it's seeming to resonate with the right people because we attract the kind of people that like I want to attract and I want to work with. Um, but it really is pretty amazing how, I don't know how sort of far it's come and, and how much we're doing right now. It's, uh, it's exhausting, but it's fun. Well, that's um, really exciting. Jack, we'll have to catch up again soon. We're out of time, everyone. The website is rowingblazers.com. They have done collaborations with Seiko, Zodiac, and Tudor, and their latest collection of Seiko watches is uh, just come out. It's quite cool. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for uh, being our guest again. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>